Colossians 3.16 tells us that we ought to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly so that we can teach and admonish one another in all wisdom and sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. And therefore, since we desire this very thing, if you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. As we jump back into our study of 1 Peter to learn how to live, not only as elect exiles, but as we saw in our last study of this book, how to live as end-time exiles for the glory of God in this world. You see, one of the things that we've been learning about in this book of 1 Peter is how, how much salvation, how much regeneration, and how much the new birth transforms and ought to transform everything about us and our everyday lives. First, in chapter 1, verses 13 through 21, we saw that being born again affects how we respond to God. We are now drawn to love Him with a righteous and reverent affection. Then second, in chapter 1, verses 22 through 25 of 1 Peter, we saw being born again affects how we respond to believers. We are now drawn to love them sincerely and earnestly out of a pure heart. Third, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we saw that being born again affects how we respond to ourselves, that we are now drawn to hate sin, and now we are drawn to love and long for spiritual growth through the Word of God. Fourth, in chapter 2, verses uh, 11 through chapter 3, verse 22, we saw that being born again affects how we respond to the world. We are now drawn to reach them in righteousness and not side with them in sin. And finally, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, we saw that being born again affects how we respond to trials. We now see them as something to be expected and as something that is overseen by a loving God who is able to work even through evil to bring about his eternal glory and the eternal good of his people. And so being born again completely transforms the way we respond to God, believers, ourselves, the world around us, the trials that come into our lives, and as Peter is showing us right now in his book, being born again transforms even the way we respond to the times in which we live. Being born again affects the way we view time itself. See, we're not Eastern mystics. We don't see time as cyclical, as something that just repeats itself over and over again like some cosmic wheel of time. And we're not naturalists. We don't see our current space continuum as eternal and unending. We're Christians. We're biblicists. And therefore we see time as something that is created and authored by God. And therefore we see time as narratival, as chiastic, as poetic, as story-like. And for the purpose of our passage today, we see time as something climactic. We view time as having a clear purpose under the hand of an almighty God as having a clear direction, of having a clear climax and a conclusion that everything in earth and in heaven is driving towards. And part of living in this world for the glory of God involves living in light of the time that you and I are living in. And Peter doesn't beat around the bush in this passage. He makes it clear right off the bat that you and I are to have an end times awareness. That's what he says at the beginning of verse 7 when he writes, The end of all things is at hand. That's what we looked at last time we were in our study of 1 Peter, that God has a grand climactic purpose and plan for all things. And you and I have been uniquely appointed by God to live at such a time as this, when the climax and conclusion and fulfillment of all things is at hand. It's the next thing to take place at any moment. 
Ever since the death of Christ, the birth pangs have been increasing in intensity, severity, and rapidity for the last 2,000 years until today. And so it doesn't matter whether you look backwards, forwards, or around yourself. It is obvious the end of all things, as Scripture testifies here, is at hand. And if we're going to live in this world properly for the glory of God, then you and I need to live under an end times awareness. This is to be the way that we are thinking. Now, what does it look like when we live under an end times awareness? When we become gripped with the reality that as God declares here that the end of all things is at hand? Well, we're going to find out today an end times awareness leads to an end times attitude. That's at the end of verse 7 on into verse 11. And we're going to see next week that it leads to an end times aim. That's at the end of verse 11. In other words, knowing that the end of all things is at hand ought to completely transform our attitudes and our objectives as Christians and cause us to live as end time exiles with an end times awareness, an end times attitude, and an end times aim for the glory of God. And so with that in mind, let's read 1 Peter chapter 4, Verses 7 through 11. The Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words for us today. Verse 7. Excuse me, if you would please stand with me out of reverence for the Word of God. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God whom we seek with our whole hearts as we wander not from his commandments. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity we have this morning to sit under the teaching of your word. I pray, Father, that during this time, your spirit would be at work to help us to understand what your word has written. Father, we know that apart from your spirit, we cannot receive the things that belong to you, but we thank you that by your spirit, we can. And so, Father, I pray that you would make your clear word clear, and that you would show your powerful word to be powerful that you would shape our hearts and our minds, our affections, our ambitions, our aims in light of what your word says about the time in which we are living. Father, I pray that you would honor and glorify yourself at the time in which we are living and that you would honor and glorify yourself in us. Help us, Father, as a church, as Grace Chapel, to stand as a light so that others might see the good news the saving power of Jesus Christ. It's towards this end we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to imagine this morning being one of the first people to ever receive Peter's letter. And hearing this sentence being probably spoken to you 
for the very first time. The end of all things is at hand, therefore, what? How would you finish that sentence? How would you expect it to finish? We know how most people would end it. They would say, the end of all things is at hand, therefore, quit your job, sell all your things, live out of the van, and wait for Jesus on the top of a mountain somewhere. In short, most people would respond to the end of all things being at hand with a general attitude of disengage. Disengage from the people and the things of this world. Retreat from it all. Focus on yourself. Turn inward and try to get yourself ready. But you know what's interesting? That is the exact opposite of what God teaches us here in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. God says, since the end of all things is at hand... Don't disengage from the world around you. Engage in it. Engage in it. And God tells us three ways that we are to do it, and none of them are the ones that you're hearing most of all from pulpits in America today. How do you respond? How do you live in light of the times in which we're living? Well, God tells us three ways that we're to do it, three end-time attitudes that we as elect exiles are to have in light of the time in which we're living And the first end times attitude is be serious in prayer. Peter writes at the end of verse 7, The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Isn't that interesting? The first thing that Peter thinks of when he thinks of the end of all things being at hand is not the need to panic, nor the need to pull out and peruse eschatological eschatological charts. Peter thinks of the need to pray at such a time as this. Is that a burden that you have been feeling As you're looking at the news, is that a burden that you've been feeling as you've been comparing our culture next to the truths of God's word? Have you been feeling the weight, the urgency, the burden to pray? The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, Peter says here, think about your prayers. Think about praying. I see so many Christians, I don't have this right now. I see so many Christians getting so worked up by what is going on in our world today. And they recognize the need to get together, to band together, to stand together in so many different ways but prayer. For the sake of your prayers, Peter says, be self-controlled, sober-minded. Now we know from Galatians 5.23 that self-control is a part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. 
So to be self-controlled is really to be spirit-controlled. The more the spirit is in control of you, the more you are in control of yourself. By the way, this is why it's such an unbiblical idea to think of one of the ways that the Holy Spirit manifests himself today is by people losing control. By laughing uncontrollably or dancing uncontrollably or shaking uncontrollably. That's an unbiblical idea because as we're told in Galatians 5.23, the fruit and manifestation of the Spirit is actually to have self-control and to have it elevated and honed to a supernatural level. And Peter says here, part of living as an end times exile is exhibiting that Spirit-empowered self-control in the times that we're living in. Oh, what a good word that is for us today as I was thinking about it. In the midst of a world that blames their anger, that blames their bitterness, that blames their rudeness, and that blames their actions and hatred on everyone else, we as followers of Jesus Christ should not be known as people who are triggered by things. We ought to be known as people who exhibit supernatural self-control by the Spirit of God no matter what circumstances we are in. And as for that second word, sober-minded, that means to be clear-headed or to be clear-thinking biblically. Ephesians, uh, and spiritually, Ephesians 4.18 tells us that sin darkens our understanding. Sin muddles the waters. It keeps us from being able to think clearly about things. It divides our affections. And a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And so the only way to be sober-minded and clear-headed spiritually is to have our minds transformed and washed clean by the Word of God. As Romans 12, verse 2 says, Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We as believers ought to be known as people whose thoughts are clear, whose thoughts are reasoned, whose thoughts are grounded on the clear Word of God. We ought to be self-controlled and sober-minded in our day. Boy, we need that today, don't we? We live in a day where there is no self-control or sober-mindedness. We live in a day where emotions are out of control and where thoughts and messages are constantly twisted and manipulative. No one is forthright anymore. No one is honest. Everybody is couching their terms in a thousand different ways. And we need to shine as lights in this world by being people who have our emotions controlled by the Spirit and who have our thoughts made clear and captive and forthright by the truth of God's Word. The end of all things is at hand. It's time that we live different. We ought to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Why? For the sake of our prayers the primary engagement we are called on in light of the times as which we are living is prayer. You would think, no, we need to be self-controlled for the sake of our evangelism. We need to be sober-minded for the sake of our apologetics and our debating of our worldview. Oh no, dear friends, you and I need to be self-controlled and sober-minded so that we can pray the way we ought in the times in which we're living. For the sake of your prayers, it is essential for the sake of our prayers to be self-controlled and sober-minded. It is the only way to pray effectively. Indeed, it is the only way to pray. Just think about it. If you're going to be able to focus on God in prayer, you need to be what? Self-controlled. <laughs> and you're going to need to be able to rein in your focus. And if you're going to be able to pray according to God's will, 
then you need to be sober-minded. You need to be able to think clearly about your situations that you're bringing before the Lord in prayer according to God's word. As I was thinking about this, this is probably where most of our prayer lives struggle, is it not? It's in the area of self-control and sober-mindedness. First, we're not self-controlled, and so we often pray whenever we feel like it, which is rarely at all. And second, we aren't sober-minded, and so we don't often even know what to pray about when we come to the issues of prayer. I need to grow in this. We all need to grow in this. Because if we're going to glorify God for such a day as this, then being serious in prayer is an essential end times attitude. We must recognize the burden that is on us in our day to gather together as God's people and pray together in a self-controlled, sober-minded way for the glory of God. Jesus made this very clear that this is an end-time attitude in Luke chapter 18. When he told a parable to the end that you and I ought to always pray and never lose heart, Jesus told a parable in Luke 18 of how even a wicked judge won't delay giving justice in the face of persistent requests. And then Jesus concludes his parable in verse 7 of Luke 18 with these words, And will not God, who unlike the wicked judge is perfectly righteous, will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them, and speedily so. Nevertheless, though, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? In other words, Jesus is saying this, God answers the prayers of the faithful. The only question is, when the Son of Man returns, will people still be praying in faith? And he doesn't answer that question to spur us in our prayer lives. In the last days before Christ comes, I want you to think about this. Will Christians be fighting with the spiritual weapon of prayer faithfully that has divine power to destroy strongholds? Or in the last days before Christ comes, will they have abandoned prayer for more fleshly weapons that hold no power? If nothing changes, I fear we'll be closer to the latter rather than the former. God, by His Spirit, must do a work in our day, not in the world, in the church, in you and I, so that as we live in the times in which we're living, we would be gripped with an attitude and the burden to be serious in prayer with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Being serious in prayer is an end-time attitude. It's how we live as elect exiles for the glory of God in our day. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious in prayer. Second, be substantive in love, Peter tells us in verses 8 through 9. Be substantive in love. This is an important end-time exile. Now, notice how Peter begins here in in verse 8. He says, above all, keep on loving one another earnestly. Now, this is not new for Peter. Peter has put a priority on Christian love in every single 
chapter of his letter so far. Back in chapter 1, verse 22, Peter wrote, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly out of a, uh, earnestly from a pure heart. And then in chapter 2, verse 17, after Peter encourages us to honor the emperor, he then says, love the brotherhood. And then in chapter 3, verse 8, Peter writes, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Over and over again, Peter keeps on reminding us of the priority of loving one another. Well, here, as Peter discusses the importance of having an end times awareness and attitude, Peter emphasizes the supremacy of loving one another. He says in verse 8, above all, you could underline that if you want to, above all, the most important attitude you and I must possess in light of the nearness of Christ's coming above all is love. Love for one another. This is the most important end time attitude to possess. And the Greek indicates that this command actually flows right out of the previous one in verse 7. In other words, the natural result of being controlled by the Spirit and saturated with the Word of God is suddenly possessing a supernatural, sacrificial love for the brethren. It is the beginning of the fruit of the Spirit. It's the culmination of the law. Galatians 5.22 and Romans 13.10 teaches us, love one another. And notice Peter says, above all else, make sure you keep on loving one another earnestly that's the attitude we need to have of love and that word earnestly in the greek pictures the way that an athlete strains or stretches his muscles to their absolute limit it's really pictured quite beautifully in first corinthians 13 4 through 7 where peter writes love is patient and kind love does not envy or boast love is not arrogant or rude It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never fails. See, true Christ-like love keeps on loving earnestly. True Christ-like love can withstand anything from anyone at any time. It can withstand anything from anyone at any time. Love believes and hopes the best from each other, but also bears and endures the worst from each other as well. This is Christian love. And Peter says, love each other like that. Keep on loving each other earnestly, so intensely like this that it hurts you. See, there are many things about each and every one of us that would not, that would not make us want to love each other. Or am I just speaking for myself? Namely, we are overcome with what? Faults and sins. And yet Peter says, nevertheless... We're to push against those resistances with all the spiritual power God has given us and overcome those resistances in these days with an overwhelming love. 
And that's why he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Why? And he quotes here Proverbs 10, verse 12. He says, since love covers a multitude of sins. And here we start getting at an understanding of why love is such a critical end times attitude. It's because love is unique. It can cover over a multitude of sins. You see, over in Matthew 24, verse 12, which we read this morning, Jesus warned his disciples that in the last days, because of lawlessness will be multiplied, most people's love will grow cold. See, what causes love to grow cold between believers is lawlessness. It is sin held on to. It is selfishness. What causes love to grow cold is a spirit of sovereign selfishness, of self-focus, self-preservation, self-worship, self-indulgence. And because we are thinking only of ourselves, we wrong each other more often than we should, and we forgive each other less often than we ought. And what happens? When we're living like that, love freezes over and grows cold under the oppressive weight of sins committed and forgiveness withheld. Jesus said in the last days, this is going to be the spirit of the age. And Peter tells us it must be combated by us who are followers of Christ. How? with the explosive heat and power of Christ's own gospel love. See, in the midst of a cancel culture world, where every slight offense demands an equal and opposite reaction or escalation, Christians are to set themselves apart from the world that we're living in by letting our love and devotion for one another cover a multitude of sins. Now, I want to be clear because everybody always hears what a pastor isn't saying rather than what he is. I want to be clear that that does not mean that Christians are to overlook an unrepentant sinning brother or sister. No. If that was the case, if a brother or sister is overtaken by offense, is caught in any trespass, as Galatians 6.1 says, we should seek to restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Right. So when Peter is writing here, to let love cover a multitude of sins, that doesn't mean Christians are to ignore when a brother or sister is falling into a pattern of unrepentant sin. No, what it means, what Peter's talking about here, is that a Christian, someone who has been touched with the fiery love of Jesus, they should be someone who is easily able to overlook and forgive sins and offenses that are committed against them. This is what love looks like. Love understands that none of us are perfect and all of us will sin. And the only way porcupines can live together, right? The only way that all of us as Christians with all of our sins and all of our failings and all of our faults, the only way that we are going to be able to keep standing together in the midst of all that is in this world on the way to heaven is is if we possess love. Love that covers a multitude of sins with forgiveness. See, love is a shock absorber. It's a disposition of the heart that cushions and smooths out bumps, irritations, and offenses that are caused by fellow believers. Love is what enables fellowship in spite of sin. Love gives you a thick skin 
rather than a thin one. And Peter learned this from Jesus himself, who taught him in Matthew 18, 22, to forgive a brother who sins not just seven times, but 70 times seven. That's what love does. By its very nature, it covers a multitude of sins. It forgives, and it forgives, and it forgives, and it forgives. Why? Because this is exactly how Christ has forgiven you. You never wear out his mercy. You never wear out his forgiveness. We are to shine the light of Christ in our relationships as well. This is how you know that it's love. And then I absolutely love what happens next. Peter gives a substantial way that all of us can fight against our love growing cold. And he gives us a substantial way that we can demonstrate Christ's overcoming love towards one another in these final days. Here it is. He says in verse 9, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. That word hospitality literally means stranger love or showing love to strangers. And it was a very big deal back in the ancient world, by the way. See, Christians couldn't stay at inns back then because they were basically brothels. The only way that a believer could travel and keep their reputation intact was by other Christians opening up their homes and foods and goods to one another. Well, Peter takes that same idea and he says, do that only, not only to believers that you don't know, as Hebrews 13.2 commands, but also towards believers that you do know. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Open up your house and your home to each other. Have meals together. Exchange goods together. This is what it means to have a substantial love. This is a substantial, concrete way to demonstrate an earnest, overwhelming, fiery love for one another and fight against the coldness of our age. It is not by grumbling against each other, but it is by showing hospitality to one another. We can demonstrate verse 8, in other words, of keeping, of loving one another earnestly by the command of verse 9, and they really are connected to one another. I don't need to get greeky geeky but this this directive to show hospitality defines the constant and earnest love just commanded in the previous verse the type of love we are to earnestly show each other is the type of love that opens up our house and home and hearts to each other the same love that looks at others and covers over is the same love that looks at others and invites them to come over and where there is no coming over love there will often be very little covering over love as well. And so this is a substantial, concrete way to begin showing Christian love through hospitality. As one Christian author put it, the gospel comes with a house key. And how do we know that? It's because this is literally how the gospel came to us. Ephesians 2.13, in Christ, we who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We've been redeemed, Galatians 4.5 says, so that we could receive adoption as what? Sons. For us, the gospel did come with a house key. And therefore, Romans 15.7 says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. Christ did not keep a hand, an arm's length distance between you. He folded you in to his own life, and his own heart, and his own family, and his own home. And I want you to take a few minutes and moments this morning and think about that. I want you to look around at the people that are here this morning. Seriously, you can do that if you want to, right? As long as everybody's doing it, it's okay, right? And I want, I want you to think to yourself, how many of the people here today have come within just the last few years. 
Now, how many of those people have you had over to your house in the last few years? Has there been an earnestness to show a substantial love to your brothers and sisters in Christ? How many of those people have you done anything with outside of Sunday morning? And vice versa, for those of you who are new, this goes both ways. See, it is easy to show love to lifelong friends, isn't it? It's easy to do that. But the gospel asks, how well do you show love to strangers? The type of love that makes strangers your friends. The only way we can begin to develop an earnest love for one another that overcomes the coldness of this age is by beginning to develop an inviting love for one another. Be substantive in your love, not just in word, but in deed, as First John teaches. This is an end-time attitude that we are to have. And the author of Hebrews makes it very clear that this is an end-time attitude because he says this in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25, that we ought to be stirring up one another to love and good works, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We ought to be exhorting one another and encouraging one another and loving one another and interacting with another and fellowshipping with one another, one another all the more as we see the day drawing near hospitality and being substantive in love is an end time attitude it's not the end of all things is a hand is not a call to fill up your pantry with food for yourself it is a call to bring other people's over and open up your pantry to them hospitality and being substantive in love is an end times attitude Don't hoard. Show hospitality. Put it on a coffee mug. There you go. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious in prayer. Be substantive in your love. Not just in word, but in deed. We'll have to look at the last end time attitude this next week. But for now, to apply God's word to all of our lives, first, we've been called on this morning as end time exiles to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. And I want all of us to consider this morning, believer, when Christ returns, will he find you? Will he find me? Will he find us in the midst of a triggered generation being self-controlled by means of his spirit? As Proverbs 16.32 says, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. Whoever rules his own spirit, then he who takes the city. That's the type of people that God calls for in our day. And let's ask God today to help us gain self-control over our spirits so that our children and our families and our communities can see the spirit of Christ that is in us in these last days. When he returns, let him find us self-controlled by means of his spirit. Also, let him find us amidst a chaotic time being clear-headed for the sake of, by means of his truth. Has the chaos of our time filled you with confusion? Return to God's word this week and let him clear your mind by his truth. As Psalms 19, verse 7 through 8 says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It brings clarity. So let's transform our minds by the truth this week. When he returns, let him find us self-controlled by his spirit. Let him find us clear-headed by his truth. Why? Because we are eager to be serious in prayer. 
When Christ returns, let him not find us turning to fleshly weapons of this world that hold no power. Let him find us in the challenges of these days, gripping unto death that weapon of always praying and never giving up. Let him find us being serious in prayer as end time exiles. And then second, we've been called on today to be substantive in love to show in these increasingly cold days a warmth of overcoming and coming over love. So first believer, what sin or slight or wrong has someone committed against you that has woven and planted a seed of bitterness in your heart? What do you need to commit to the Lord and cover over with love this morning for the sake of his name in these days? Whom do you need to forgive as Christ has forgiven you so that your love stays warm? And then second, whom do you need to welcome as Christ has welcomed you? Whom do you need to invite over to your house this week or go out to coffee with or start a Bible study with this week? so that you can stir one another up and fan into flame your love and good works in the days in which we're living. Because the end of all things is at hand, and that is not a call to disengage, but to re-engage for the glory of God. Fellow pilgrims, in light of the coming glory, let's be serious in prayer this week and substantive in love for the glory of God and the salvation of the lost around us who are watching. This is the word of God. From 1 Peter 4, 7 through 9, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience until Christ, who is our first love, who is the one who has welcomed us, and who is the one who is the answer to all of our prayers, returns. To that end, as the men come forward for communion this morning, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Oh, Father, I thank you for how it quickens our hearts and the truth by your Spirit. Father, we thank you for reminding us of the times in which we live and beyond even that, showing us exactly the way in which we are to walk. Father, I pray that this week you would would help us by your Spirit through your Word and through godly fellowship, that you would help us to grow in our self-control. Help us to exhibit the spirit of Christ. Help us to grow in our sober-mindedness. Help us to exhibit the mind of Christ. Help us to be serious in prayer, following the example of Christ. And then finally, Father, help us to be, help us to be substantive in our love. Help us to not just say that we love one another, but that when someone wrongs us, When someone slights us, we would cover that over with the love and affection of Christ. And that, Father, we would see one another as you see us of great worth and wonder and beauty. And we would invite each other over. And that we would shepherd one another and encourage one another and stir one another up in the days in which we're living Father, don't let our love grow cold. May we fan it into a hot flame so that in a cold world, they would see that we are your disciples by how we love one another.
I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.